Hey everybody, it's another episode of Minor League News and Brews. You guys have been liking these, been having some good guests on, and today, from The Athletic, we have Zach Buchanan at ZH Buchanan, a former beat reporter for The Athletic, covering the Arizona Diamondbacks. Now, I believe your thing says you're covering prospects and baseball, so everything baseball in general, all the prospects have been putting out some some great articles recently. Zach, how you doing today, brother? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good, man. And and with the uh, the Pirates uh, falling to the Arizona Diamondbacks and then falling to the Texas Rangers, a lot of people are focusing on the minor leagues. Um, some specific players. One that uh, you had a scout talk to you about pretty recently in... Henry Davis, our 1-1 one, one draft pick from a couple years ago. And there was some interesting stuff in there. And it was this was even before he started playing right field a little bit more. Yeah, so I think – so I wrote a story about Henry in the fall league last year. Um, it, and I know his, his first full season was – you know, it didn't really live up to expectations. He was hurt a lot uh, in his prospect kind of cachet kind of suffered because of it. I think that's a little, that was a little unfair that he got Dane because he really wasn't healthy uh, the whole season. He didn't have much of a chance to really find a groove. And now we're kind of seeing, you know, when he's healthy at the, uh, what he can do at the plate. I mean, he's just, he's gone nuclear um, for double A Altoona. There's probably an argument that he needs to be in Indianapolis, if not the majors. Um, and so the, the bat is going to play. He's a super smart, super prepared guy. Very, very type A. Um, the big question is, has always been and probably will continue to be, can he catch? Um, right now, uh, you know, evaluators would say he has a long way to go, much farther than his bat has to go to be able to catch. He's he's not super mobile back there. He, he can be a little stiff. He, he needs to work on the, on the blocking and the receiving um, I, I think he's a pretty good student of the game when it comes to game calling and he has a hell of an arm. Um, so kind of the X factor if you're, if you're spinning it forward a couple of years is, are we going to have automatic balls and strikes in the majors? Are we going to have the challenge system? How much of that kind of receiving, uh, set is going to be valued in a couple of years. But, um, you know, right now it's not surprising that they're trying to explore different positions for him because the bat is so good and, and it could probably help the team soon, if not now that, uh, you know, they need to find a place to play him where he's not a liability. And, he, you know, that's not to say he can't become a really good catcher. Um, it, it just takes a lot of hard work. And I actually, I was just in Michigan, um, last week talking to the guy who, who was his backup at Louisville, who is now a top prospect Dalton rushing with the Dodgers. And he was telling me about the kind of the catching development there at Louisville. Uh, it was kind of such that you kind of teach yourself how to do all that stuff. There's not a lot of one-on-one instruction and it took rushing getting into uh, a very good player development system with the Dodgers to kind of pick up some of the finer points of catching. So I would imagine Henry's in kind of a same position where he's had to kind of learn how to, do some things on his own back there and could have benefited from some more hands-on instruction. Yeah. And with, with Henry Davis, I mean, right field has been talked about as an option. They did play him. You, you wrote about him in the Arizona fall league. They did play him in some right field out there. He seemed to be like, you say that type a personality as a guy, he's just like, okay, I'm a catcher. I want to catch, 
but has maybe loosened up to that idea of playing some right field because that might be the quicker path to the majors like at the moment. And that's what every guy's goal is. He said that from the beginning, he has that. He's like, I don't want to be in Altoona. Not that I don't like Altoona. He's just like, I want to be in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And I think that's a, um, something you see a lot of young players go through is kind of, you know, the tug of war between the, the position I've always played versus being a major leaguer. You know, we hear about it a lot with young starting pitchers like, well, if you switch to relief, maybe you get to the majors quicker. Um, and they have to kind of swallow their pride and give up the idea that they are a starting pitcher. And I, I saw this more, more uh, directly with a, a guy in a similar situation um, Dalton Varsho with, with the, who was with the Diamondbacks at the time, you know, he came up with as a catcher, he had always been a catcher, but he had some limitations. You know, he, he was, he was probably, he's more athletic than Henry Davis is, but he didn't have the arm strength. Uh, and he had the, you know, f- at, for him at the time, he viewed it as the most fortunate of being really good in the outfield, like a really, really good outfielder because he was so fast. And eventually over the course of last season, he started getting more and more time in the outfield, less, less time at the plate. And I think it bugged him initially. And then he realized, well, this is my path to playing time. This is my path to at bats. And he also happened to be really good at it. But he had to kind of give up on the idea that he was a catcher. You know, he's an outfielder now. And I, I don't know if Henry's to that point. I think it's probably too early to switch him off that position um, entirely. But, you know, if you're finding other avenues to get him playing time, I mean, w- when you have two guys like uh, Indy Rodriguez and Henry, um, you, you're going to want to find ways to keep them on the field together when they're both really interesting offensive players. Yeah, especially, I mean, with the, with the Pirates, like, luster offense and power at this point in time. I mean, that's probably, that's why everybody wants them up here, and I want them up here as well. I just, I, you I you don't want to get stuck on, like you said, with a Dalton Varsha, like him giving, not giving up on being a catcher, but realizing that, you know, the path to the majors and the way to, I guess, like, achieve your dream. But I bet you money, you know, as he's catching at Louisville, Henry's probably thinking, whenever I'm in a major league stadium, I'm going to have my catching gear on and I'm going to be back there and I'm going to be calling the game. And that's something that's very hard to give up on. I think it is. Yeah. And I I don't think he has to give up on it right now. There's something to be said for just adding some positional flexibility that gives you yourself the ability to play a different spot. And so I think if he's playing right field right now, it's not because he is a right fielder. It's opening up that option for the pirates. If they want to get his bat up there, okay, we feel comfortable putting him in right field. I would be very surprised if they are giving up on him being a catcher at this point. I mean, he's too valuable a prospect to to kind of take away that part of his value so quickly. Because um, he, he really hasn't had the benefit of the reps yet. That was the big thing last year. You know, he had the wrist injury. It was on his glove hand. Um, and uh, he, he really couldn't drill a lot of the things that you need to do as a catcher to get better, to get kind of quieter in your receiving and more technically sound. Um, and so I, I'd be interested to see kind of the progress he makes this year. Uh, it, you know, if he were hit, if he had a 750 OPS or even an 800 OPS right now, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It would, it would be like an encouraging developmental year for him. His first legit full season where he's playing every day, it, but it's because he's hitting so, so well that you kind of 
if you're the Pirates, you get that temptation to, ooh, let's put that bat in our lineup, especially with how well things are going. The flip side of it is if the Pirates, Pirates didn't start off as hot as they were, and if they were sitting 10 games under 500 right now, we wouldn't be having this conversation of, do we, do we need to rush Henry Davis up to the big leagues? You know, A lot of it is just kind of the circumstances they find themselves in. Yeah, it's like it's like the perfect storm uh, on Pirates Twitter and social media is, is kind of what it's become. Uh, an article that I, I read of yours that you wrote uh, pretty recently is about a prospect that is you know new to the Pirate system in a, in a Tamar Johnson. Tamar Johnson, you know, a very young guy, very uh, talking about like having like these guys with like these electric personalities or very strong personalities. Tamar is, is one of those. Everybody remembers his interview uh, after he was drafted and he was just like, I can't wait till, you know, I can help the pirates win a world series. Like that's just like what his mindset is. Um, And he's a high school player, you know, came out, was injured at the beginning of this year. But um, is he a guy that you could see, you know, maybe moving through the system quicker than, uh, a, a prototypical like high school bat. I think so in, in general, I, and I know he's been hitting better more recently. I uh, I was in Bradenton back in April, and unfortunately, only got to see him play one game. He didn't play the field because he had just come back from injury. And he had three really impressive at bats that game, and I left like really impressed with him. And then right after I left, he went in the tank for a while, <laughs> uh, which is to be expected. I mean, he's he's eighteen years old, um, but the talk about him as an amateur was very much about how advanced a bat he was, uh, that he had, he had a tremendously well-oiled swing, super bat speed, um, great contact ability to, to get to anything in the zone. Um, but also like a good sense of how to conduct his at bats, you know, you know, more than the average high schooler would. I think that's the quality that would allow him to move a little more quickly. Um, you know, Corbin Carroll is like the, platonic ideal of that like he he zoomed to the big leagues basically in his first full season after dealing with a major injury the, the year before um i don't think we should be measuring everybody by that but tamar i think has the capability to move pretty quickly like i wouldn't be surprised if we're looking up at next year and he's starting in double a or something like that you know he seems like the guy that if he gets on a roll at bradenton starts hitting really well they're going to want to bump him up to greensboro to to make sure that he is challenged because he has the type of talent that can kind of rise to the occasion. So um, yeah, I do think he's a guy that can move quickly because that was the kind of the talk about his skill set at the time. He wasn't as raw as maybe an Elijah Green was, who might have better physical tools overall, but might need more time to put it together. He was pretty polished, especially at the plate. Yeah, and, and another guy uh, who is uh, a teammate of his right now is is somebody that's been kind of a little bit of a surprise to – Pirates fans and even, you know, Pirates prospects fans uh, that a scout came to you and uh, Emmanuel Torero, uh, a name that he actually got a fairly large bonus, was a pretty big, you know, international signing for the Pirates. But when you have like a Jordani De Los Santos, you have a Shaylin Polanco, you have, uh, you know, some of these other players, uh, Tony Blanco Jr., that he's like one of these guys that gets, you know, maybe lost in the shuffle a little bit but is kind of growing into his own at a very young age. Yeah. So uh, I watched a lot of him when I was down there and I have to admit, like he wasn't a guy I was like really keying on. Um, but it, you know, he certainly didn't stand out in a bad way, but that's the, 
that's the tough thing about going to like the Florida State League in April is you're getting a lot of these draftees right as they're starting their career, and you get a lot of these Latin guys basically in their first full season, uh, first season of full season ball, like in, in the first couple weeks of it. And it's hard to really know, okay, who's who that I'm seeing is legit, and who's you know who am I going to look up in three months, and oh, this guy didn't turn out to be anything. Um, but you know, it's funny those guys like six hundred thousand dollars is a, a a sizable bonus, but certainly you know he's not a guy that's pulling down like one point five million or something. But so many of these guys are essentially lottery tickets. Like you look at Ellie De La Cruz with the Reds, who signed for I think sixty thousand dollars out of the DR. And then sprouted because he he went from 16 to being 19 and he grew like five inches and got super strong. And so you just never know. It takes a couple of years for these guys to show up. And it looks like Torero might be like like a legit center fielder. And, uh, you know, it it doesn't sound like he's going to maybe have much power. He can maybe still grow into some power, but uh, he's working a really good on base right now. He makes good swing decisions. Uh, I don't think anybody's kind of projecting him to be a star. Uh, but if, if you're getting like a useful major league player out of him and you can kind of see that at this point when he's so young, I think that's a win. Yeah. And, and like I said, I, he was somebody who I had kind of, you know, looked at the FCL numbers last year and I'm like, oh, he's got a pretty, pretty good walk rate, you know, not striking out a lot, controls the zone pretty well. And I'm like, but then I like almost like kind of forgot about him. Cause like I said, you get blasted with all these other, you know, big name guys and it's not a guy that you said that you hadn't keyed on. I didn't key on. And he kind of comes from out of nowhere. And and I'm just wondering like for, for the pirates, is there, you know, anybody else that you maybe have heard about or that you've, you know, been watching and you're looking to see like how this first part of the year goes that, you know, maybe pirates prospect fans, pirates fans haven't heard that much about. Um, there are a couple guys that are heard about at that level. Um, uh, Javier Rivas has not been going well, but he was like super fun to watch in the field when I was out there. I mean, he's six foot six. Um, he he looks like, despite his size, he could stick at shortstop. He just has really good actions. He's really smooth. He's got a great arm. Um, it wasn't really going well for the plate. Now that's all I think is going to be the big question for him. A guy that I wanted to see but didn't was Jack Brannigan. Um, cause I've heard a little bit about their plans for him. You know, he's going to be a hitter, but, uh, I think he's back off the IL now. I'm not sure about that, but I think from my understanding, the plan was to have him throw a bullpen session maybe twice a week because he can run it up to hundred miles an hour. And then whenever he works his way to double a triple a, they might start pitching him in games every now and then. So he can qualify for two way player status, which is a really interesting kind of new developmental wrinkle that organizations are going to have to, to deal with post Shohei. Um, and so those, those are the two guys at that level. Although, uh, I, I wrote a little bit in my notes package from that trip about Thomas Harrington, who is pretty impressive and, and seems like he's, he's got a good head on his shoulders and a good kind of arsenal of pitches. So I'll be curious to see how he progresses. Um, especially considering his college teammate, Zach Neto is already in the major leagues. Uh, and then a guy from last year that I saw that uh, I've been kind of always checking to see how he's doing and he's doing better now. He's not at Bradenton, but is, a uh, Quinn Priester, who um, I got to know a little bit last year when he was in Altoona, and I'm just fascinated by the way he thinks. He's got such, you know, what they would call a growth mindset. He's so curious about things that have to do with pitching and things that have nothing to do with pitching. And I think um, it's it's that brain that he's got in his head that's going to allow him to to kind of transcend his already considerable talent and be a really good player. And so it's it's nice to see that he's been pitching well after kind of a rough start to the year. 
Yeah, and Quinn Priester, I mean, he's he's a dude. That's what I just basically say. That man is a dude. When I was down there for spring training, they gave him that Sunday off because it was like the daylight saving time or something. And there was one man out there working, and that was Quinn Priester. Like, he was just, you know, doing, like, the the pilo balls. He was running. He was doing whatever. But then he was also the guy that saw that we were standing over there, just, like, three guys just kind of trying to figure out exactly who it was. But then as soon as he stood up, it's like, oh, geez, that's Quinn, and he's a lot bigger than I thought he was. They just came over and just talked to us about baseball for like 20 minutes. And he's like, all right, I'm going to go work out again. But if you guys are still here, I'll come back and talk again. But people forget that he's a kid that basically taught himself how to pitch and taught himself how to pitch like off of YouTube. Like he's a legit like student of the game. And if a pitch isn't working, he's also not going to be the type of person that's like, okay, I'm going to force this pitch. He'll, he'll pull something up and say, you know what? I I seen this working for another guy. Let's see if I can throw that. He's a guy that I think when I was talking last time and I talked about him, compared him kind of in, in a way to a Mitch Keller that he could expand his arsenal if he wanted to, to probably six or seven pitches. I don't know if he would be able to throw them all. You know, he he's young and he could still develop that, but he's a kid that can just, he just is fascinated by how the ball spins, different types of stuff. And he could just like learn a pitch like on the fly. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's super important in today's game to not be set in your ways in anything because the game changes so fast and, and players adjust, hitters will adjust the pitchers so quickly. Um, you know, we, we, we saw that, you know, when we got the uppercut swings, everybody's going top of the zone and now hitters are adapting to the top of the zone. So you're seeing sweepers and kind of side to side movement come back. And that's all just in like the last three or four years that's all happened. And so I think that sets Quinn up really well to that. He's always curious. He will always be looking for the next way to get better, you know, a way to improve this pitch or that pitch. Uh, and so it, I'm, I'm excited for whenever he debuts, debuts in the major leagues. Uh, I'll be interested to see how it goes. Yeah. You, you and me both. And, and we could move to a little bit of major league talk here because as I said at the beginning, and, and as I read about, you were, you know, the beat writer for the Arizona Diamondbacks, a team that I believe started their rebuild right when you kind of started writing there. Cause that would have been right around like 2018, correct? Uh, yeah. So 2018, they were actually in first place until the first day of September and then just absolutely cratered, uh, and fell out of the playoff race. And then, uh, they traded Paul Goldschmidt. That was kind of their only big kind of rebuild move after that season. It had a surprisingly competitive 2019, 85 wins. Uh, and so it's funny. I'd actually, if you're going to ask like the difference between how theirs went and the, and the pirates went, I'd actually argue that the Dynamax didn't rebuild. Um, maybe they well they, they didn't even do that really. They <laughs> they kind of sucked really bad by accident and had to deal with the reality of it. But I it I think the reason they're good today is because they they did a good job of doing that concurrently while drafting really really well. Um, I mean Corbin Carroll was the 16th overall pick in the draft. It's not like he was the number one pick and they they just had a abhorrent record. You know, he was, he was the pick they got after the 2018 season, he was in the 2019 draft. And, um, so I, I think that, you know, if you look after 2019, when they won 85 games, that's when they went out and they traded for Sterling Marte, they signed Madison Bumgarner. Um, they, they made all a whole bunch of win now moves that didn't work out at all. And 
you're seeing them be good now because they were able to kind of do both things at once. They, they were able to bolster their farm system, but once those prospects were ready, they still had these pieces on the roster that they, they had had previously that kind of helped them become, you know, keep their head above water and, and be ready to win now. So Christian Walker was already here. Uh, you know, Josh Rojas was part of the Grinky trade in 2019. They got Zach Gallon back in 2019 as well. Um, a lot, some, so many of these kind of complimentary pieces around these young players were here, kind of setting them up to to win. Once Corbin Carroll was ready, once Gabriel Moreno was ready, and they can make all these moves. Um, the difference I see with the Pirates is the Pirates were trying to lose for a while, right? You know, they they were hard to watch for a while. They just wasn't any really notable major league talent on the roster. They would pretty much sit out the winter every year. Right. And this was the first winter where they went out and actually spent a little money. You know, they, they went and signed some players and some players who, you know, it's not just over oh, signing this guy because he's a good veteran influence. It's okay. We want to kind of take a step forward here. And, you know, so you, you've seen that happen. It's helped propel them, but it, it's having to come together all at once. You know, you know, the, the prospects are having to figure it out in the majors all at once, you know, O'Neill is, is hurt. Um, some of these other guys aren't ready to make the jump yet. And so maybe we're thinking like next year is the year that the pirates really make a move. Like it, they've shown encouraging signs this year. Uh, but we, I think we're always asking ourselves, can they keep this up? Probably not. But maybe when Quinn Priest is there, when Henry Davis is there, when Indy Rodriguez is there, some of these other guys they have at the upper levels of their system and you add it to some of the, the veteran, pieces on the roster that they've uh, took they've added in, in, in over the last season then maybe you're seeing something closer to what the Diamondbacks are doing right now and the Diamondbacks they took some I mean like moves that would probably drive Pirates fans nuts like a man that you mentioned a, a Dalton Varsho you know had been developing throughout their system has his kind of like breakout year and then they trade him in the offseason. If the Pirates traded a, a four-plus war player that they had developed, I, I'm pretty sure that the fans' heads would explode. But they also used it to fill positions of need within the team. Yeah, so that, that was like left-handed hitting outfielders were their greatest area of depth. Um, and cause you, you know, one, they weren't going to trade Corbin Carroll. He's untouchable, but then you had Jake McCarthy, Dalton Varsho, Alec Thomas, and a couple of guys in AAA who had uh, appeared in the majors yet. And they kind of reasoned that, look, we're going to get the most bang for our buck trading Dalton. He's coming off the best season. He was maybe a candidate for regression a little bit. Um, Alec Thomas uh, had more prospect shine when he was a prospect, but he's really struggled. Jake McCarthy might be a really good player, but he didn't quite have the, the prospect notoriety that Dalton had had. And so they said, look, we can get more trading Dalton while still being relatively deep at that position and address a couple other weaknesses we have. And, and they got uh, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., a right-handed hitting outfielder they really need, and look how good he's been. And they they were really barren catching-wise in the system. And they get Gabriel Moreno, who was technically not a prospect anymore because he passed his rookie eligibility. But he, he had been like a top five prospect in the game. And he's hitting 300 or something right now as the everyday catcher. Um, I think it was just a really smart kind of accounting of where, where their strengths were, where their weaknesses were, and using one to address the other. 
Yeah, and, and another trade that I always c- kind of go back to is was an under the radar uh, at the trade deadline type of move in uh, a Jazz Chisholm for Zach Gallen. I mean, the guy who's on the cover of MLB The Show was in the system, but then they go out and they get who is be you know developing and becoming you know an ace within their system and potentially you know within Major League Baseball. Yeah, that was an interesting deal at the time because that, that that was the deadline where they tried to kind of have it both ways. So that and within like you know thirty minutes of each other, they had traded Grinky to the Astros, shedding some of his money, getting four minor leaguers back, uh, almost all of whom have not worked out. Josh Rojas is the only one, and he was the throne of the deal. Um, it, but at at the same time, they they flipped Jazz for Zach Gallen, and I think that 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 was more about that they would just become so enamored with gallon and they felt like this is our chance to get this guy. The Marlins may not realize what they have and they had to dangle something pretty good. I mean, jazz Chisholm is a, is a very good player. Uh, and he's certainly like a draw for the Marlins who have had trouble bringing fans into the ballpark. He's a big personality. He hits the ball super hard. He's playing a really good center field all of a sudden. Um, and so the, the Diamondbacks knew they were giving up. They had to give up something of value to get something really wanted. And they knew they had Geraldo Perdomo coming up right behind Jazz. They had Nick Ahmed under contract for a couple more years. So they felt like, okay, we're kind of covered at shortstop, but we need this type of pitcher, especially if we're going to be getting rid of Grinky. And it's worked out really well for both yeah. sides, arguably. Yeah, arguably for both sides. But it's, it's just a very interesting thing. And I always have to throw in there that my – one of my most hated teams, the St. Louis Cardinals had Al Contrera and Gallon in their system and traded them away. And now they can't pitch, which just makes me laugh. Yeah. It kind of <laughs> pokes a hole in the whole Cardinals devil magic stuff, doesn't it? Yeah. But then they get Matthew Liebertor. So we'll see how he turns out. He looks pretty good, but you know what, Zach, it's been great talking to you, man. And, uh, Definitely hope we get to do this again. For anybody that doesn't, please go follow uh, Zach Buchanan. It's at Z.H. Buchanan, uh, writing about prospects in baseball for The Athletic. Uh, Zach, this was awesome, brother. Can't wait to do it again. Yeah, thanks for having me. It is beer review time, everybody, and we are... uh, going to be talking about a brewery that actually uh, Chris and I did a live uh, broadcast from and actually you know what me and Gary Morgan um, from uh, the Pirates Fan Forum over at DK Pittsburgh Sports we did a uh, an opening day I believe it was live show from their uh, their brew house at the point or the the uh, the tap room I believe it was called uh, down there at the point and this is Sly Fox Brewing Sly Fox Brewing has a nice mix uh, of beers. Uh, And I'm not saying that not every brewery does this, but they have, you know, a nice mix of IPAs, a nice mix of, you know, the golden lagers. They have, you know, this Hellas that that I'm going to be, you know, uh, going with. They just have like, if you like any type of beer, um, they have something for you. They opened... Uh, a new location uh, within the past year or so over there at the High Line. Uh, and I feel like that a lot of people like kind of don't know exactly where the High Line is. If you don't, go find it. Go find some Sly Fox, sit outside, play some games, um, enjoy the view from over there. Uh, but I'm going to be reviewing four beers today 
everybody knows the the weighted based on batting average, the Waboba uh, system. Uh, the one I've been sipping on while I was talking to Zach there, our guest from The Athletic, uh, is the Haze Fix IPA. I love my hazies. This one's coming in at about a 5.5, which for a hazy can be a little bit lower. So it has more of, I always call that like drinkability, um, where you can have more than one and it's not like either you know, making you too full or, you know, just, you know, the higher alcohol content, you have less. And uh, it's more of like an all day drinkability on it, the haze fix. Given that the 425 weighted based on batting average brings it down to 375. Uh, the other one, the one that I had had before, and I, I had didn't even look to see how to pronounce it before, so I, I believe I was mispronouncing it the entire time. And it's the it's the Volpuin, and this is is a tropical Indian pale ale. This one's about a six percent, but once again falls within the drinkability. Falls within one that I really really enjoy. This is the one I usually have. Um, when I go there, uh, this one also coming in at 425, 375, just very high quality uh, IPAs, hazy IPA. They, they're, you know, drinkability, taste, everything is really, really good. Um, one of the ones that I could just drink pretty much is the Bavarian style golden lager. It's the Hellas golden lager. Uh, this one right here. I, I, once again, I'm going to go 425, 375. I feel like every single one of these beers is extremely high quality, extreme drinkability, uh, just good beers to have. And then they have the Pikeland Pils, and this is the Northern German style Pilsner. Uh, and this one right here, this is like a little bit lower. It's the 4.9, another drinkability. And I hate to repeat myself again, 425, 375. If you haven't, uh, get over there to the High Line. They also have uh, their little tap house, The Point, which has some really good pizzas. Uh, get something to eat there. The manager at both places, Adam, has been more than welcoming and great with me and Chris and me and Gary and myself when I've just kind of stopped by. I got, got a great team at both of those places, so go check them out. And as always, let's go Indians. Let's go Curve, let's go Hoppers, and let's go Marauders, let's go Bucks. Uh, follow me everywhere uh, at Bucks in the Basement. And tune in next week uh, for another episode of Minor League News and Brews.